This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brent. Is there a worldwide learning crisis today? My guest, Keith Lewin, argues that the real issue in much of international education development has to do with financing. The problem is recurrent finance because, frankly, building enough schools to house all the kids in the world is very imaginable if you see it as a 10-year project. Using external resources, which are grants and don't generate debt, where you give the money. But if you start applying that to the teacher equation and the teacher salary equation, it can never work, it will never work. Uh, The only way that can be financed is to use aid and uh, trade policy to generate the possibility, the probability of fiscal states. A fiscal state is a state which can finance itself and its public services from its own revenues. In our conversation, we discuss aid to education and the ways in which the Sustainable Development Goals don't take the idea of sustainability seriously enough. The way in which Western capitalism works, it is to assume that there is a discount rate on the future, uh, which means that in the future things will be cheaper. Well, we should act the other way. Our clean air, our national parks, our fish in the sea, our zebras on the savannah are all going to be more expensive in the future. We've got to cost them that way, otherwise they won't be there. Keith Lewin is an emeritus professor of international education and development at the University of Sussex. Keith Lewin, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. You have written a lot about financing to education, um, and we actually hear a lot about the financing gap, that there's a lack of money in or for education, globally speaking. What does that even mean, the financing gap in education? It means a lot of different things to different people. Clearly, development is a time-bound process. The faster you try and do it, the more resources you will need in a given moment in time. And when people talk about the financing gap in education, they usually mean that they've done some sort of calculation looking at what would be necessary in order to finance the achievement of the SDGs, in particular SDG 4, which is the one on education, what would be necessary for that and what the current uh, allocation of of, uh, government budgets uh, and the percent of GDP is to education and whether the two balance or indeed one is greater than the other. If you do that, um, for example, across the African countries, sub-Saharan African countries, uh, you'll find that a reasonable definition of what SDG 4 would require in terms of new school places, buildings, teachers and and all the rest of it. African countries would need to spend about 6.5% of GDP on their education systems. In fact, at the moment, the average is closer to 4%. So for African countries, they would have to increase spending on education by something like 2.4% of GDP to get up to that, that yeah. idea. Uh, yes, and the low-income countries average a bit less and the low-middle-income countries average a bit more uh, in terms of the proportion of GDP they currently spend. And what about in other parts of the world? What, I mean, what does this financing it's, gap even look like? Uh, it's, the, the calculation is pretty much the same in terms of the proportion of GDP. If you have the demography, that is the number of children relative to the number of adults, Um, that poor and low-middle-income countries in Africa have uh, because the the big drivers of these things are the number of children relative to adults 
and the uh, proportion of uh, GDP you collect in tax, which allows you to finance your government. So the story on that is really quite easy to understand. Uh, in a rich country, we uh, like the UK, we collect about 40 to 45 percent of our GDP in revenue which we can use to finance government services, 45 percent. A typical low-income country is collecting about 15 percent. That is one-third as much, relatively speaking. And the problem is, the big problem is, that they will have probably twice as many children per adult, maybe even three times, and it's adults that pay taxes that generate the wealth that creates the money to pay the government, which then can pay the teachers to teach the children. So there is a problem. Um, it's partly demographic and structural, but it's particularly a problem that cannot really be solved by aid. This is the critical point at which we find ourselves. So before we turn to aid and really think about how aid is contributing or not to this financing gap, I want to just clarify. So you said 45% of GDP is... Being collected in in uh, revenue tax of one kind or another. Taxes put, put of it, one kind. Yeah, or another. And, and indeed that uh, would include aid in okay. a country that was receiving aid. Okay, and so the amount of tax that's collected in a country like the UK pays for all of the government services. It's much easier for a rich country which collects 45% of GDP in tax to pay for public services, universal schooling and the rest of it. Um, than it is for a poor country which only collects 15%. I mean, this is simple arithmetic. The problem is that the country which is only collecting 15% uh, cannot tomorrow double its tax rate because that wouldn't produce twice as much money. But if it doesn't increase um, the revenue collection, uh, it will never actually be able to afford from its own resources to school all the children and meet SDG 4. And therein lies the, the problem. The problem is that if that gap is filled with aid, aid doesn't provide recurrent financing. Aid is unreliable. You may get a lot of money this year and no money next year. So what, so is, what is recurrent financing for those listeners who might not know that, that terminology? Uh, a, simp a simple distinction uh, is between recurrent and, and capital expenditure. Capital expenditure is things that last a long time. Building buildings, building schools that last for 50 years would be regarded most systems as capital expenditure. Paying teachers, on the other hand, you have to do every every year, every month, continuously, and therefore you must generate a revenue stream continuously. The problem with aid is it comes in chunks, and it's not necessarily reliable. So if you're a friend of uh, the United States one year, you may not be uh, so much of a friend the following year, and they may cut your rate. The same with the British and Danes or the Swedes or any other agency. We uh, see varying appetites to give aid to education over time. So it cannot and should not be used for recurrent financing. It creates dependency if you do that. And is aid being used for recurrent financing? And, yeah, I mean, yeah. I understand that it causes dependency, but is that actually happening? Yes, it must be. It may not be directly, but it must be indirectly. So low-income low and low-middle-income countries appear to spend about 4% of GDP on education, as I said. Uh, in actual fact, if you look at the proportion of and GDP they raise in revenue from their own resources. It's much less than that. They, they, mm. they, they cannot afford to do that. They're only doing that because a proportion of that 4% is being provided from uh, external finance in the poorest countries. There are about a third of the countries, we think, in the low-income bracket are receiving a third of their government budget in total 
from external financing. Now, if you receive a third of the mo total money to run your government, pay your civil servants and do these other things, <coughs> clearly you, you're in a worrisome position if the person or people and the agencies that are financing that um, change their mind about whether you're a suitable person to grant or lend money to. So the worrying thing, the really worrying thing about this is that there are probably 20 to 25 countries that have been in that position for uh, 25 years. Um, so if that's true, to the extent that's true, it means that the external financing has not generated um, endogenous development which can finance itself. Um, it's done the opposite. It's, it's prolonged dependence. And that's a challenge, and that's a challenge which um, is created by these financing gaps. Uh, because if you fill them with aid, um, then you almost by definition must be generating dependence. Or you will be unless the aid is a very small proportion of the total resource. This is not, and I repeat this one, this is not to say that aid is something we shouldn't do. But we should do it in a uh, carefully considered way within limits that does not increase debt, unsustainable debt, and generates independence and the politics of real accountability between the people and those who are governed, mm. the people who pay the tax and the people who spend it. The real politics is not between the, the country and some external donor, it's between the people and their own government. It seems quite ironic to think that the SDGs are trying, the Sustainable Development Goals on SDG 4 is trying to, in part, trying to fill this financing gap. And yet, through the very process of aid, in some cases, as you have just said, it is actually creating dependency because it is, the aid is being used to fund recurrent expenditures in an unsustainable way. And so it seems like that's a great irony of the SDGs. It, it's a paradox that by doing something which seems desirable in the short term, you may be making it more difficult in the longer term to sustain uh, the result that you value. And surely it's fundamental to the idea of sustainable development goals that when you set yourself a target and you achieve that target, you do not find five years later that you're back in the position you were at the beginning and you have to achieve the target again. That is the risk which is being run here. Um, some of the projections of the size of the gap um, are astronomic. Um, my own estimates, um, and we've done this several times, would come up with a figure, I think uh, I was saying, of about 15 billion a year additional needed in low-income countries and perhaps 25 billion in low-middle-income countries. So that's 40 billion a year needed. Remember the total amount, the total volume of aid to basic education at the moment is probably about six billion a year. The <laughs> replenishment of the GPE, the Global Partnership for Education, produced, um, if my memory is correct, about 2.3 billion over three years, which is about 800 million a year. So these numbers are much smaller than the gap that we've been talking about. Now there are other people who are talking about filling that gap with new innovatory forms of finance, as they refer to them. But if they did that and they produced 10 billion a year on a recurrent basis, this is an enormous amount of money relative to the size of the economies it's being poured into. And it doesn't answer the question of what would happen in 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022. You would have to do this every year or you'd have to fire the teachers that you just employed. And the problem is recurrent finance because Frankly, building enough schools to house all the kids in the world 
is very imaginable if you see it as a 10-year project um, using external resources which are grants and don't generate mm. debt where you give the money. But if you start applying that to the teacher equation and the teacher salary equation, it can never work. It will never work. Uh, the only way that can be financed is to use aid and uh, trade policy to generate the possibility, the probability of fiscal states. A fiscal state is a state which can finance itself and its public services from its own revenues. This doesn't stop it from borrowing, but it does mean that it can't be borrowing several times its GDP in order to finance itself, because it will go bankrupt and it will default and we will have to have HIPIC again. Have what again? HIPIC, debt relief. Debt relief. Right. So are aid agencies trying to help some of these low-income and middle-income countries that have such a large financing gap in education? I'm sure there's other issues in, in social services as well. Are aid agencies trying to help these countries create better tax systems, create a way in which they can generate the revenue domestically to fund the recurrent expenditures? Uh, I think we see the beginning of that realisation, but it's long overdue. Um, that The so-called learning crisis is really a financing crisis. Um, the reason why every kid's not going to school, of course, is partly political and about fragile states and so on. But at the end of the day, in all but the short term, it is about the ability of states to finance public services. That means that states have to have viable economies, they have to grow, and in particular, people have to pay tax. We think that uh, 20 people in Africa have assets in excess of $100 billion. We don't believe that most of them pay a proportionate share of tax. Indeed, we have some empirical studies now which illustrate that it's people in the middle of the income distribution in Africa that are paying most tax, and people who are the richest and the poorest are paying the least. This clearly isn't helpful from the point of view of public accounts and financing public services. Uh, there is another story about uh, corporate taxation, tax holidays and the incentives that companies are given. Uh, there's another story about corruption. We think that uh, probably more than $50 billion a year simply goes missing and is stolen across Africa, which is much larger than the numbers we've just been talking about. We're also very aware that um, there is grounds for cautious optimism. Tax collection ratios are improving. Ten years ago, there were probably only two or three fiscal states in Africa that could raise revenue sufficient to cover their public services. Now we think that pr that number is heading up towards double figures. It's being helped by digitization of cross-border transactions at, at ports uh, so that you can check who's paid uh, duty and who has not. It's being helped by the introduction of tax identification numbers, which means that you can't do business with government or indeed anybody else unless you identify yourself as a taxpayer in a particular country. And you certainly can't do cross-border transactions of significant amounts of money mm -hmm. without being a known person. And we now have the ability to use wealth orders, which require people who have extraordinary wealth to demonstrate where it came from and that it's acquired legally. And if it has, there's no problem. So in these countries that are exhibiting some cautiously optimistic improvements to their tax system... Do we see the education financing gap in those countries shrinking? Too many countries to have one answer to your question. <laughs> um, but yes, in some of them, absolutely. The opportunity is there, and there are some countries which have clearly made considerable progress and are pushing up to 20 or 
more than 20% of GDP in revenue collection. At the same time, if there are countries which have demographic transition, uh, they will have fewer children per taxpaying adult and therefore the ability to invest more per child. This is very much part of the story globally because most countries now do have low population growth rate and that makes it much easier to reach the SDG4 type goals. But unfortunately, in most of sub-Saharan Africa, demographic transition won't actually happen probably until 2050. Uh, the difference between the countries, but there will be a lot of young people um, for the next 20 years in Africa who require opportunities to go to school. Mm. One very interesting thing is that um, Philip Coombs wrote a book called The World Education Crisis in 1968. He did an analysis of the proportion of GDP that was allocated to education in poor countries. He came up with a number which I seem to recall from memory was 3.8%. So for a similar data set, Currently, uh, that number is still 3.8, 3.94%. There's something about the demography and the politics and the governance of poor countries which seems to create that result, which mm. has been very resistant to change mm. since Jomtien, since Dakar, since all the studies that I and others had done on financing over the last uh, 30 years or so, where the numbers tell the same story, but the political will to change the underlying reality that you're not spending enough money and you're not collecting enough money that hasn't really shifted the, the dial hasn't really shifted that's the challenge now the, the, there is an opportunity um, it is absolutely related to the idea of sustainable development we do not see that knocking through yet into financing the financing which is on offer much of it to me I'm afraid does not appear to be driven by criteria of sustainability it's driven by the old criteria of we have a problem, we haven't got enough money, how can we fix it, let's mm. shovel some money into this particular problem without thinking, well, what happens the morning after when you wake up mm. and, and you spent the grant or you've got to repay the loan? The loan ratios in the countries that need the most assistance are pushing up against the limits of creating another round of uh, indebtedness and default um, and that should worry us all because it is clearly the opposite of sustainability. The aid agencies that you've looked at and that are contributing to this financing gap in education, are there any agencies that you think are doing a better job than others, like that stand out as they're, they're sort of on the forefront uh, of this new thinking of financing and taxation and, and, and recurrent I, I, expenditures? I, I didn't um, suggest that the aid agencies were creating the gap. The gap is created by the political economy mm -hmm. of resource allocation in low-income countries and the, the politics of how much tax you collect and what you spend it on. So just a, a random example, I mean, there are countries which are heavily aided, which, are, which spend three times as much on their military as they do on their children. And therefore, they're you know, investing in soldiers rather than, than uh, the education of, uh, of children. And uh, it may not be obvious why they're doing it unless, uh, if they're not fighting a major civil war or cross-border war. So we have to be aware that governments make choices and they're sometimes not choices we would necessarily agree with. But we should reflect that in how we can use aid to accelerate development. It's clearly pointless to give more aid to a country uh, who chooses to use the resource for a, not for the purpose it was intended for. And sometimes it's quite difficult to, to uh, figure that one out. The best solution is to work towards a situation where the country has the real politics of representation, 
people pay tax, they call their government to account for their public services, and if they haven't got enough of them, they have to either agree to pay more tax or, or indeed forego the services. So that surely should be the, the, uh, the aim. Uh, whether some agencies are better at doing these things than others, um, uh, I think is a question that, re that requires type 2 thinking in Kahneman's terms. Um, that is, it's an analytic question which could be answered, but uh, to answer it in real time off the top of my head is not <laughs> something I'm about to do. I, I mean, w one example that I can think of, of of maybe not good practice, but bad practice based on what you're saying is some of what the World Bank does. They put out this report called the Doing Business Report. And they have an indicator where they, well, so they measure, they rank countries based on the ease of doing business in these different countries. And one of the indicators they have is paying taxes. And countries actually receive lower scores if they collect all sorts of taxes. So countries are actually, in a sense, nudged in the direction of cutting taxes, getting rid of certain different different tax schemes they might have developed on property or dividends or financial transactions or income taxes. So to me, that sort of goes against a lot of what you were saying. And why would the World Bank do that? It seems like they're going against the, the very idea of sustainability. Uh, I think you probably said it in one. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not answering on behalf of the bank. Clearly, uh, there is there is a tension. Um, I don't know if the uh, the, the, the um, policy advocacy you're talking about applies to the United States as well as to a poor country in mm -hmm. Central Africa. But the reason I mention that is because clearly something like the amount of tax that you raise in revenue, it, it's not a linear thing. Neither can you say less is best or more is best. Neither is true. Somewhere in the middle is about the right amount, depending on your demography, the amount of tax your taxpayers are willing to, to bear, uh, what their preferences are in terms of how it should be spent. Mm. So it's not more is better or less is better. It's look at each as a case-by-case -case basis, see what the need is, indeed in that kind of terminology, see what the gap is, and see what would be necessary for this thing to work. Remember also that uh, lying behind uh, this equation is growth in the economy. If you have real growth in the economy, even with the same proportion of the government budget and the same proportion of GDP, you'll have more resources to school your children and pay your teachers because you've had real growth. So it's right. And now if low tax creates real growth, that's great. But if low tax creates either no growth or people exporting the revenue that they generate, the money they make, um, well, that's not going to be helpful either. It's a more complicated thing, than I think, than... than, than can be simply put. Mm. It is the macroeconomics of development and growth and the responsible government that provides, generates sufficient resources to provide public goods. And public goods are essential and at the centre of equitable development. And do you think the sustainable development goals as a framework capture that idea? No. So, <laughs> why not? I'm not sure it's a fair expectation of the SDGs to do that, but you have to remember that the SDGs as currently formulated are a list, not a recipe. They're not a strategy that can be converted into a theory of change. Indeed, I would challenge those people who work around the SDGs to, to, to make explicit what their theory of change is, and I mean theory of economic and developmental change, not 
uh, planning a project and implementing it. That's a challenge, because if it really is more than simply a list of things which are pretty self-evidently desirable, it somehow puts them together into a strategy um, where the parts are linked together and can synergize with each other. I don't think we have anything like that. But what we have is a lot of contradictions. You've just pointed out one. If you think that low tax is the way to grow, you have to answer the question how low tax is going to generate more revenue for public services. This will only be true if you have a lot of growth. Uh, You might have the opposite. Uh, In terms of distribution and equity, um, the SDGs aren't really very clear about how far they're what they're prepared to pay for equity, because growth itself may be unequal, and a higher rate of growth may have to be traded off against more equity and rights-based approaches to development. But I think the biggest criticism of the three years on from the SDGs is to answer the question, how is what we are doing different to what it was before 2015? Whether we're talking about coal-fired power stations and and PM2.5 particulates in capital cities, whether we're talking about the planning of school systems to minimise the traffic of parents driving their children to school, what is it we're talking about? We could be talking about a lot of things, but what we should be seeing is clear differences in terms of the kind of projects that we finance, the ways in which we use aid to accelerate development in a way which doesn't mean the day after we finish the project we have to do it again because we haven't ensured a sustainable outcome, and that we are conspicuously looking again at what we do in terms of valuing the future over the present. The way in which Western capitalism works, and indeed projects are planned and businesses operate, is not to do that. It is to do the opposite. It is to assume that there is a discount rate on the future, uh, which means that in the future things will be cheaper. Well, we should act the other way. Our clean air, our national parks, our fish in the sea, our zebras on the savannah are all going to be more expensive in the future. We've got to cost them that way, otherwise they won't be there. Is the political economy of capitalism capable of doing that? I hope so. I hope so. Capitalism has been responsible for an unprecedented amount of development which has improved the lives of many people in many parts of the world, which of course is not to say that for some it hasn't done exactly the opposite. But uh, in the current dispensation of things globally, uh, I think the safest conclusion to reach is that we still have the problem of how to manage capitalism in a way which does indeed generate growth and improve living standards for everybody, and at the same time does it in a way which is fairer rather than more unfair, and which distributes wealth across the world rather than concentrates it in a few places. Nine people in the world appear to own assets that are worth more than four billion people on the planet. This, by anybody's standards, sounds ridiculous, is ridiculous, and cannot really be necessary for the future of the planet. Surely we can make uh, a better set of arrangements that don't concentrate so much power amongst so few people in such an apparently unfair way. Well, Keith Lewin, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed today. Thank you very much. Keith Lewin is an emeritus professor of international education and development at the University of Sussex. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. 
Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. And original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.